I'd ask if you would, uh, would turn uh, in your Bibles or uh, here in the bulletin to the text for this morning, which is from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And uh, let's give our attention to, to our text. We believe this is God's Word, that uh, it's been inspired, spoken by God, that it's as if God himself has opened his mouth and spoken these very words to us. It's exactly what he's done. Let's hear him. They, that is Jesus and his disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened, and they came to Jesus. And saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat... The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This fall, we've been looking at uh, the gospel according to Mark. One of the things that we should be noticing is this 
recurring question, whether it's explicitly asked, as it sometimes is, or whether it's implicitly there in the text. But one of the questions that we should be noticing is this very simple but profound one, who is Jesus? It's the question that everybody around Jesus is beginning to ask. It keeps coming up. We saw it last time uh, in the response of the disciples. And what Mark is showing us throughout his gospel very intentionally is the identity of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, chapter 1, verse 1, that he's the one foretold by the Old Testament prophets, prophets, chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, that he's God in the flesh, come to save his people from their sins by living and dying for them. But we're not just seeing who Jesus is. I hope what you're appreciating in Mark is that when Jesus makes himself known, it's not just some sort of bare, sterile revelation of the identity of a man. But when Jesus makes himself known, there is a response. In fact, there's conflict that arises. His, his identity generates conflict between himself and the people that he com- comes into contact with. In fact, it even generates conflict between himself and things with which he comes into contact. From the beginning of his ministry, Jesus has been engaged in all sorts of conflict. We see him in chapter 1 in conflict with Satan. Again, with sickness and disease and death. In chapter 2, he comes into conflict with sin itself as the one who has authority to forgive it. And last week, we saw that he even comes into conflict with the chaos and the violence of a creation that is disordered because of the sin of God's creatures, us. And here we see more of the same in this text that we've read this morning. Jesus standing against these out-of-control elements of a world that's gone terribly wrong because of our sin and rebellion against our Creator. But what really stands out, I think, if we pay attention to this text, is very simply the remarkable power of Jesus. Jesus is slowly, he's not all at once revealing himself, right? He's slowly, gradually peeling back the layers, peeling back people's eyes, gradually showing them who he is. And as he does so, he's showing them that he wields and possesses enormous power, uh, all-encompassing, world-changing, sovereign power. But it's not like power that we're often used to experiencing or encountering because Jesus never uses his power to trample, to destroy, to manipulate, never uses it for selfish ends, but always and only uses his power to serve and to restore and to heal and to renew and to save. And in the text before us this morning, Mark gives us, I think, a threefold picture of the power of Jesus Christ. He shows us, first of all, that Jesus has the power to command and subdue demons. Jesus has power over evil. Second, Jesus has power to change people. And then finally, Jesus has power to provoke a response. So let's look at those. Jesus has power to command demons. He has power over all forms of evil, even those which find Uh, which we find most frightening and crippling. Verses 1 through 13, this is what we see in his encounter with this man. Now remember what Jesus has just been doing. In chapter 4, 
we saw him standing in a boat just off the the shore of the Sea of Galilee, teaching the large crowd that had gathered around him, teaching them about the, the kingdom of God in parables of various kind. And then evening approaches, and he tells his disciples that he wants to go across the sea. And so they set out in this boat, which we uh, considered last week, across the Sea of Galilee. And at some point in their journey is when Jesus quieted the storm that had them so frightened. Well, now they've, they've arrived across the sea to the other side here in chapter 5. They've come to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Mark tells us that they came to the country of the Gerasenes. There's some question about, about the exact location uh, of this event, but it seems fairly clear that there's this region uh, known as the region of the Gerasenes. It's in an area also called the Decapolis. You can, you can hear in there the root word for ten. This is region of ten cities, and it's a Gentile area on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus and his disciples arrive there, and upon their arrival, Jesus steps out onto the shore and is immediately accosted by a very wild, very strange man. Jesus recognizes immediately that this man is inhabited by demons, and so he's already speaking to him. You can see from what Mark says that before this man ever approaches and speaks to Jesus, Jesus has already been saying to the demon, come out of him, you unclean spirit. So apparently even before he cried out, Jesus had already taken the initiative and was telling the spirit to come out of him. And the man obviously recognized Jesus right away too. Because we see in verse 6 that when he saw Jesus from afar, how far away is he? We don't know. But he sees Jesus coming up from the sea and from some far distance this this demoniac, this demon-possessed man sees Jesus a long way off and immediately knows who he is. And as he begins to run to him, he's crying out to him, falling down before him. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember what the disciples said after they saw Jesus calm the storm. They, they look at him, they look at each other, they look at the, the water that's now calm, and they say, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. The disciples, in the aftermath of seeing Jesus' power over the storm, they do not understand who Jesus is, but Legion, this man, does not ask that question because he knows who this is. One of the features of Mark's gospel so far is that as things unfold and people are continually confused about who Jesus really is, the only ones who seem to know who Jesus is are Satan and the demons. You see that in chapter 1 when Jesus encounters Satan in the wilderness. You see it again in chapter 1 twice when men with unclean spirits know who Jesus is and Jesus silences them because they knew him. And we see it here again. This demon-possessed man sees Jesus. He runs up to him. It's a, it's, it's a crazy thing to picture But he's running up to Jesus. He's falling down and he's screaming in a loud voice, I know who you are. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, he says, by God, do not torment me. The demons recognize that Jesus is God, that he has divine authority, that he has authority over them. Jesus, why are you here? What have you come to do with me? What are you going to do to me? Are you... Here to destroy me? Are you here to send me away? It's a desperate attempt for them 
to control and manipulate Jesus using this title as if they could somehow charm Jesus or repel him because they know something about who he is. But they know in the end that Jesus has come to defeat his enemies, to clean house, to establish his kingdom, and they're scared to death. So they begin to plead with him not to destroy them, not to wipe them out. So what Mark is doing is, just as he showed us in chapter 1 in his conflict with Satan, Mark is setting up a conflict between Jesus and the forces of evil. And so if you think of it this way, in one corner there's this legion of demons. Now how many exactly is it? I don't know. But a legion was at this time a common term that was used to describe, it was a military term used to describe the main division of the Roman army. It could be made up of anywhere from four to 6,000 soldiers. So in one corner of the, the ring, we have this man inhabited by thousands of demons. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how thousands of demons come to inhabit a man, and it would be the tendency of our modern minds, or I could say our modern arrogant minds, to assume, well, of course we all know that this doesn't happen, these sorts of things maybe are, are part of a primitive worldview, but we understand that he... No, we need to take God's word for what it is. And we need to listen when it tells us that here is this man who in some way, somehow is inhabited by thousands of demons. This is a man who's tormented by the powers of evil. And Jesus faces off against these forces of evil. Here they are in one corner. But it's more than that even because Jesus engages with these demons on hostile territory. Now where is Jesus? We're told he's in the Decapolis. He's in this Gentile region on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So as far as Jews were concerned, this is unclean territory. He's in an unclean place. Who's he dealing with here? He's dealing with this demon-possessed man who likely is a Gentile man who would have been considered to be unclean by the Jews, much more so now that he's inhabited by thousands of unclean spirits. And Mark tells us even more about Jesus' environment. He's surrounded by, by pigs, unclean animals to the Jews. They weren't, forbidden, they weren't permitted to touch them, to raise them, to eat them, to be around them. Jesus is surrounded by a herd of at least 2,000 pigs. And even more than that, he's in a region where there are tombs, where there's death. Jesus is in a hostile environment. He's about to do battle in an unclean place, surrounded by unclean animals in the midst of unclean graves while standing face to face with an unclean man who's filled with unclean spirits. And so Jesus is in a, an environment that could not be more hostile, that could not be darker, that could not be more saturated with evil. And yet here in the midst of all this evil, all this uncleanness stands Jesus, stands the pure, undefiled, spotless, holy one, the righteous one of God. Here he stands. Here he is right in the midst of this world. That's what he's come to do, to stand not in the midst of cleanness, but in the midst of uncleanness and evil and chaos and to subdue it, to save his people. He has no sword, he has no army, there's no apparent strength that he has. What does he have? As he stands against this evil, he has one thing, he has his word. He simply commands, and they listen. 
These are his enemies. They hate Jesus. They're opposed to him. And yet when he speaks, they cannot but obey him. He speaks and they listen and they respond to him. And Jesus has his way with these violent devils just as he had his way with the violent storm on the way over there. And it's nothing for Jesus to do this. It's no, it's, it's, there's no effort. It's a blowout. It's an easy victory. And so in verse 10, we see the evil spirits reduced to begging Please, Jesus, please don't send us out of the country. I don't, I don't really know why. Why don't they want to be sent out of the country? But they don't. Please, Jesus, don't send us out of the country. And then in verse 12, we read them continue to beg. They asked his permission for something very specific. Hey, Jesus, there's a herd of pigs there. And we're told that on this hillside that they're standing, this steep bank that would have led down to the Sea of Galilee, that somewhere on this hillside there was grazing or whatever a herd of pigs do. I don't know if they graze or just snorting, walking around, doing whatever a herd of pigs do. There's, there's, there's about 2,000 pigs. Have you ever, have you ever seen 2,000 pigs together? I haven't. But they say, Jesus, there's a herd of pigs over there. Send us into them. Let us enter them. And Jesus gave them permission to do that. And in fact, they needed his permission. You notice that? Not only do they listen to him because they're under his authority, but they can do nothing without his permission. Like Martin Luther once said somewhere, even the devil is still God's devil. And then the unclean spirits came out, we read, and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushes down the steep bank and into the sea, and they drowned in the Sea of Galilee. What a sight. Now, it's troubled some people that Jesus would permit the destruction of these pigs. And and so someone will say, well, how how could Jesus do that? This is the livelihood of some people. This is their herd. These are their animals. And this just terribly violent, uh, severe thing. Why would Jesus do that? It's so gruesome. It's so, well, but if, if those are our questions, then we're really missing the point of the text which I think is at least twofold. One, that this man, this man whose body and whose mind and his life has been so trashed by evil is much more valuable in Jesus' sight than that herd of pigs. And Jesus, secondly, is exposing, and we shouldn't miss this, Jesus is exposing the true intention of the demons who inhabit this man. They're the ones who are inhumane, not Jesus. By permitting the demons to enter the pigs and destroy them, Jesus shows everybody what the purpose of those demons, what the intention of those demons was for this man to ruin and destroy him. And that's always Satan's agenda. That's always the end goal of sin and Satan and evil in this world and in your own life. To make you miserable, to ruin you. And then to destroy you. Now, he doesn't show you that up front, of course, or you wouldn't, you wouldn't buy any of what he does. You wouldn't listen. You wouldn't be deceived. You wouldn't give him the time of day. But he's the deceiver. He's the, the destroyer. And his goal is always destruction. So when Jesus sends these spirits, thousands of them, into the pigs, thousands of them, he shows not only his compassion for this man and, and his compassion for people who are battling against evil, But he also shows that he has come to conquer and in the end destroy 
evil itself. Now, I'm not sure how you think about Jesus. I'm not sure how you picture him when you think of him. But do you see his power here? He is certainly tender and gentle and kind and gracious, but we should not imagine for a second that Jesus is weak. He became weak in the incarnation. He was humiliated in weakness as he bore the sins of his people on the cross, but that weakness was a voluntary weakness. And even as he hung in weakness on the cross, he was achieving victory. He was triumphing. Jesus is not weak. Jesus has all power and all authority over evil, over the demonic, over Satan, over sin, over all the dark forces of evil in this world. Now let me ask you this. What is it that you think Jesus cannot overcome? What dark place, what, what evil thing, what horrible situation, when you think of it, you think, oh, I just don't know. I just don't know if there's any hope. I don't know that the kingdom of God could ever go there. I don't know that Jesus could ever overwhelm that, overcome it. But whatever you think is the darkest, uncleanest, most impossible place in this world, Mark 5 is showing you that Jesus is bigger and brighter and better and stronger and mightier than any of the darkest places anywhere in this world. Jesus is not afraid of opposition. Jesus is not afraid or intimidated or threatened or threatened by evil. He has power to command demons. He has power over evil, and they know it. Do you believe that Jesus can shine brighter and better and stronger, not only in all those dark places in the world, but the dark places in your own heart? Do you believe that whether it's the fearful evil out there somewhere or the fearful evil in here, do you believe that Jesus has the power to subdue it? Jesus, Mark is showing us, has power to command demons. He has power over evil. And he shows us that Jesus not only has that power, but he, brought, he has brought it all to bear in order to redeem people and restore them to what they were created to be. So Jesus has power to command demons, but secondly, he has power to change people. You certainly see that here in this text. One of the strangest, and I guess in a way, most entertaining things that you can watch on TV is commercials for Things like diet plans and exercise videos. Okay, it could be some diet pill. It could be, you know, a P90X commercial. It could be, I, I'll date myself a little bit here along with some of you, something like, you remember the ab rocker uh, or the ab roller? But one of the things that these programs thrive on is the, the strategy of the before and after picture. Right? You can, you can already, you can see this in your mind already, Right? Here's the before picture. It's somebody that looks a lot like you look right now. And if you, if, you were, if you were happy about it, you wouldn't be looking at their material. So here's this before picture, and then here's this after picture. And, of course, you, you think you don't even stop for a minute. You think, I'm going to look like that. This is going to be great. 
And they show you that before and after because they want you to believe that their program can affect just the kind of change that you need in your life, with your diet, with your whatever, with your physique, whatever it might be. Well, Mark 5 has one of the most amazing before and after uh, pictures ever. Because Jesus absolutely changes this guy's life, changes his life. And the difference is incredible. Here's the before picture. Look at it again in verses 3 and three through 5. What's this man like? What was he like before Jesus changed his life? He, we're told he lived among the tombs. He lived among death itself. He's completely isolated from society. He's alienated from everybody. People have tried to control him. They've tried to bind him. They've tried to chain him and shackle him to something. But he keeps pulling the chains apart and and shattering the, the shackles that they've used to contain him. He can't be contained. He's completely out of control. No one can help him. No one can subdue him. He's absolutely desperate and miserable. In fact, night and day, Mark tells us, and we get lots of detail, even more from Mark than we do from the other gospel writers, but we're told that this poor, miserable, oppressed man, night and day, all the time, he's wandering around. Is he running? Is he stumbling? Is he crawling? He's wandering around all hours of the day, screaming out, crying, and cutting himself, Mark says, cutting himself with stones. This is what sin always does. It disintegrates, it destroys, it dehumanizes, it distorts, it ruins, and this man is absolutely captive to it. Now, I want you to think for a minute about the Garden of Eden and what God made man for and how he made man and what his purpose was for man. Was it this? Now, this man is as far from Eden as anybody ever was far from God, far from other people, distressed and tormented and miserable, one of the most miserable human beings in the history of human beings. And it's a horrible picture that's painted for us here. This is the before shot. But look at the after. Look at the after picture. Jesus permits the demons to leave the man. They go into the pigs. They rush down the hillside and are drowned in the sea. And now what? Well, verse 15 tells us what. The people come back to Jesus and see the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion. What's the after picture? Three things. He's sitting there. He's clothed. And he's in his right mind. This guy? They couldn't hold him down with chains. Now he's just sitting there with Jesus, sitting. No one could do that. Everyone had tried everything, and no one could do anything, but now he's just sitting there. And what else? He used to run around naked, scaring people, screaming, being crazy and uncontrollable. Now he's clothed in his right mind. He's fully recovered. Is he sitting there with Jesus having a conversation? Is he talking to the disciples? We're not told, but he's sitting there. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. He's calm. He's normal. This is the classic before and after. This is the picture of the salvation that Jesus brings. 
This man was a terror to himself and to others. He was alone in the world. Now he's restored. He's sitting with Jesus. Earlier he was inhabited by legion, these thousands of demons. And he begged Jesus to do what? Leave us alone. Don't destroy us. But now what does he do? Oh, Jesus, can I please be with you? Can I just be with you? Can I be one of your disciples? Can I be near you? Can I live near you? Can I be with you? This man's been changed. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus, and now he wants Jesus more than anything else. Why? Because the same Jesus who calmed a violent storm has now calmed a violent man, and he's used his power not just to subdue evil, but to restore this man who was oppressed by evil. How? He only needs to speak. He just speaks. He doesn't need any tools. He doesn't need any thing outside. He just speaks. So the question that is being presented to us, this is not just something that happened way back then. It happened then so that you could think about today this question, do you believe that Jesus has the power to change people? Do you believe that Jesus can change you? That he can completely change your life? He's still the same. Jesus hasn't changed. His power hasn't been weakened. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. He's the same today as he was on this day. And he is able to change. He is able to come into the lives of people who are absolutely a wreck. No one can help them. They can't help themselves. And Jesus says, He speaks. He just comes and speaks. Change. It doesn't often happen as drastically and suddenly as this man. We'd like that, I think, wouldn't we? It's not always this drastic and sudden. But Jesus can forgive and restore and change, and there is nothing so severe that he cannot do it. What are, your, what are the things that you think Jesus can't change? Maybe it's in you. Maybe it's in your spouse. Maybe it's in your children. Maybe it's in the city. Maybe it's in the world. What are the things that you think Jesus can't change? you believe he has the power to break the grip of those sins that just dog you and persist in your, in your heart and in your life? And, and you can't shake them. You can't seem to break their power. What are, what are, what are those things for you? Is it some kind of sexual immorality? Is it the grip of fear and anxiety? Is it anger? What, what is it for you? What are those deep-rooted sins that have you in their grip and their claws? Jesus can change you. Jesus can come and forgive you and restore you and make you slowly, yes, and steadily, but yes, truly, into the man, the woman that he made you to be. Well, the same Jesus we see here in Mark 5 is alive today, and that means that you can have a before and after picture as well. Because Jesus is a willing and able Savior. He never promises to do everything you want him to do. But he does promise to do far better than anything you could ever ask or imagine of him. So you can trust him to save you and to change you and to restore you. Jesus has the power to change people. Finally, Jesus has the power to provoke a response. We see that in this text. In fact, really, the first 13 verses gives us the story 
of Jesus in this demoniac. And the rest of the story, for the most part, gives us a picture of different responses to Jesus, but Jesus always provokes a response. In fact, what you see in the Gospels is really that whenever anybody sees Jesus, whenever they really get it, whenever they really catch on to what he's saying and doing, they respond. It may be positive, it may be negative, but they're not indifferent to it. And that's what his power does. He provokes people to a response. And this text shows us three different responses. This is where I want us to finish. What's the first response? It's that of the townspeople. You see what happens as soon as these pigs go in the sea and drown. You just can imagine people standing on the edge of the cliff and they're looking, they can't believe what they've just seen. And the herdsmen run back to the town. And they start telling everybody what's happened. And so people start coming back out. They're coming back out from the towns and they come out and they see what's happened. They see this man sitting with Jesus. And how do the townspeople respond? Verse 15, they were afraid. They were afraid. Why were they afraid? Jesus did this to that guy? He quieted him. He subdued him. Someone who's this powerful is dangerous. And they know that. Someone with this much power, someone who can do such drastic things with people, hmm, I don't know, maybe he'll do something drastic with me. Please leave. They're afraid of Jesus because they see what he can do. Back in chapter 4, the disciples were afraid of the storm, right? But when Jesus calmed the storm, they were really afraid. And here, in chapter 5, the townspeople were afraid, no doubt, of this crazy demon-possessed man. But now they're really afraid because they've seen Jesus, with a word, subdue him. And so they want him to leave tragic. The Lord and giver of life stands in their midst and they beg him, they beg him, go, leave. But some of you are doing this too. Some of you are doing the same thing. You're afraid to follow Jesus. I mean, you're really afraid to commit to him. You're afraid to really be all in with him because you think that he will do things in your life that you're not comfortable with, and you are right. He he will mess with you. He will turn you inside out. He will touch things in your life that you want him to leave alone. He will call you to leave things that you think you can't do without, and he'll call you to do things you think you cannot do. And so some of you are keeping your distance from him. You, you want him sort of close. It's like having a chaplain nearby. It's nice to have somebody around when things are hard, but you don't want him too close. Not so close that he could do something like this on you. And so you keep your distance because you're afraid of it. You're afraid of him. But you need to know that as long as you try to keep him at a distance, you're moving away from him. And as you're moving away from him, you're moving away from life. You're moving away from hope. You're moving away from joy. The change Jesus brings may be hard. There's no doubt about that. But the change he brings will always be infinitely good. So that's one response, fear. Fear and resistance. Second response, the people in the Decapolis. Look at verse 20. This man who's healed by Jesus is sent by Jesus back to his hometown to tell them what Jesus has done for him and what are we told about their response 
last three words of, of, the, of this section, and everyone marveled. Doesn't mean they were all converted. Doesn't mean they all had saving faith. But they're amazed. They're amazed about the change in his life. They're amazed about what they hear him say about Jesus. Now that's been convicting to me this week. We should see this happening as a result of our own lives. Even if, even if someone that you know and love and pray for and talk to Jesus about, even if they don't become a Christian, are they amazed because of what you tell them about Jesus? And are they amazed at what they see happening in your life by his power? Is that possible? Could that be happening? Some people marvel. But what about the third? Let's not forget the last response, which is the man himself. This man who used to have the legion. How did he respond? Two things. He wanted to be with Jesus, and he wanted to tell people about Jesus. See that here in the text. He wanted to be, oh, Lord, let me be with you. This is most likely language that's a technical way of Mark saying he wanted to be one of the disciples. This is the language that Jesus used, or that Mark used earlier to describe who the disciples were. They were those who Jesus wanted to be with him. Lord, can I be one of your disciples? I want to be with you. Let me go take me with you. Jesus says no. He's not rejecting this man, but he's redirecting him, and he has a mission for him, and he sends him back. Go back to your friends. Go back to your people and tell them all that's happened. So what we see happening in this man, his life's transformed. And what are the marks? He wants to be with Jesus. And he wants to tell people about Jesus. That's the fruit of a transformed life. You want to be with Jesus? That's a question for every one of you this morning. Do you, do you love the presence of Jesus? Do you love to be with him? Do you love his word? Do you love his church? Do you love to be here to worship him and to be in his presence? Do you love him? Do you want to be with him? Do you want to follow him and serve him and obey him and submit your will to his will because you know who he is? Do you love him? Do you want to be with him? And then the second question is, do you love talking to people about him so that they would know him too? Jesus sends him back, go tell all that the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. When's the last time you did that? Are there people in your life who know you but just have no idea what God has done in your life? They don't understand his mercy to you because you've never told them? Mark's goal and my goal today is for every one of you to realize, for every one of us to realize that you cannot remain indifferent to Jesus. You can't sit here week after week and hear sermons and and hear who Jesus is and what he's done, and then just go out and life remains the same. You have to respond. Jesus has the authority to provoke a response. And there are only two. You fall down at his feet and you cry out to him, my Lord and my God, and you trust in him and you believe him and you find life in him because you believe that his death is for you and his resurrection is for you and his righteousness is for you and his spirit is yours and all that he has is yours. And you follow him, lock, stock, and barrel. Or you say, go away. Those are the two responses. But Jesus provokes a response. 
And so we should pray that God would give us eyes to see the redeeming, restoring power of Jesus Christ over evil, over people, and that he would give, give us hearts and mouths to praise him for it and to tell others, right? Let's pray. Lord, we, we lift up our praise to you because you keep showing us, you keep showing us how great you are, how big you are, how mighty you are. You've shown us in your son, the Lord Jesus. You've shown us in your word. Lord, we need him. We need this savior. So we do pray that you would grant us faith and repentance. I pray that those who don't know Christ would know him and would would say, Lord, I want to be with you. And that they would be sent to their friends and to the people they know to tell them about you. For those of us who already know Christ, whose lives have been changed, Lord, fill our hearts with joy over what you've done, that we would marvel at these things and that we would that we would love to tell others of your mercy to us. Lord, keep changing our lives, keep subduing us, restoring us, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.